All right, well, they're starting to head off. Uh, I just want to say thank you to those of you that are new to Salt City, uh, maybe that haven't been to church in a while, and this is a little bit different for you. I know some of you are here, and I just want to say thanks for being with us. We're really glad you're here. My name's Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have any questions or anything like that that you'd like to process after the service, I'll try and hang around up front. I'd love to meet you and process any questions you have, or if you want to learn more about Salt City or what we're teaching, I'd love to help any way I can. But just thank you so much for being here. Welcome to uh, Salt City. <clears throat> October 1st, 1932. One of the most iconic moments in the history of American sports. Okay, so uh, even if you're not a big sports person, or even if you're not a big baseball person, you probably know about Babe Ruth calling a shot. The, I mean, the guts. Okay, this dude walks up to the plate in the World Series, picks up his bat, and points to the seats in center field, calls a shot that he's about to hit a home run. And it's this epic moment in the history of sports because he actually hit a home run after he called the shot. That's why the dude became a living legend. That's why he's an icon. But imagine if he walked up there, pointed to center field, and then struck out. Uh, there was a lot riding on that at bat the second that he lifted his bat and called a shot. And if he would have struck out in that moment, it would have changed his entire reputation. If you're going to call your shot, you better back it up with how you live and what you do following calling that shot. If you're going to make audacious claims like that, you better back it up. Today I want to look at three staggering claims made by Jesus Christ from Philippians 3. Absolutely massive claims. The first one is the claim of Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and that has started to feel normal to us. Like we do Easter, we celebrate it. There's bunnies and food and family and stuff like that. This is not a normal claim. He claimed that he literally physically died and then phys physically bodily rose from death never to die again. That was the claim he made. And he called that shot before he ever died. He predicted his own death and resurrection. So we're going to look at that claim. The second massive claim from Philippians 3 is that Jesus can make you good, which might not seem like it's that significant, but we'll unpack why that's actually a really big claim. And then three, that Jesus will actually resurrect you from death if you trust him. Now, the nature of these claims mean that either Jesus didn't back them up and is a complete fool or a lunatic, or he's the God of the universe worthy of your life and worship. Those are the only two options. If he claimed these things and then actually did them, it should change everything about your present and your future, and it actually changes your past as well of what you can be forgiven of in him. Those are the only two options. There's no neutrality with Jesus, no neutrality with someone that makes claims like this, all in or all out. And so here's the goal for today. If you're not a Christian or if you're unsure where you stand with God, I, I just want to stir up your interest a little bit and help you see that the question, did Jesus rise from death, is the central question of your life. And in fact, the central question of human history, that everything rises and falls on that one, on that one question. 
And if you have been convinced, if you, if you claim Christ, if you are a Christian, I, I want you to see that something that has become normal to us is actually staggeringly beautiful and amazing. And because he rose from death, he's worthy of your life and worship. And that we should be stunned by the reality of his power and his goodness to us and what he did in that resurrection. All right, so let's, let's look at these three claims. The first one, Jesus rose from the dead. So I just want to read to you the section from scripture that we'll be in today. We're jumping out of our normal series. We're looking at Philippians 3. If you'd like to flip there with me, I think it'd be great to have your eyes on this text. I'm going to start in verse 7, and then we'll, we'll skip down after I read for a little bit. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I, count as, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then skip down to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of amazing promises for those who will trust in Jesus. And like I said, a lot of big claims about who he is and what he did. But all of that rises and falls again on what's claimed in verse 10, that Jesus, in fact, rose from death. And, and we don't just mean that metaphorically. We do mean it metaphorically that because of the life of Jesus, this, this new life and kind of the essence of goodness has radiated out into the world from his life and is still spreading today. We mean that, but we also mean more than that. We mean historically, literally, he rose from death. And if he didn't do that, Christianity is a sham. It's, it's a complete lie, but if he did, the only logical response is that he's God and, she, and he should be worshipped as Lord of everything. And so here's what I, what I want to do, is I actually want to give you six reasons why I believe that Jesus rose from death. Okay, we're not going to unpack all of these. Hopefully that's, that's obvious that we're not going to go into the fullest extent of all six, but I just want to rapid fire a few of these. Number one. There was an empty tomb in Jerusalem. So I want to emphasize the empty tomb and then Jerusalem. The very fact that there was an empty tomb doesn't inherently mean that Jesus rose from death, but it does demand that we have an explanation for why there was an empty tomb. The empty tomb is a historical fact. There wasn't a body to be found where Jesus was laid. And so our question has to be, what happened there? How can there be an empty tomb? One of the only explanations given is that the disciples stole the body in order to sort of continue this lie that Jesus could rise from death. The problem with that is, is that there was a several thousand pound rock rolled in front of the tomb that was guarded by a, uh, a group of Roman soldiers who were trained fighters and their lives depended on protecting that tomb. 
And so the idea that the disciples who had been cowering for the last several days in fear of the Romans and denying any association with Jesus somehow dodged the Roman soldiers, pushed away a, a thousand, several thousand pound rock and stole the body seems challenging. But also the fact that it was in Jerusalem. Here's why that's significant. Christianity historically spread from the city of Jerusalem, which is the same city that Jesus died. Now, why is that important that it spread out of the same city that Jesus died? Well, because the centerpiece of the claim of Christians was that Jesus had risen from the grave. That is the easiest thing in the world to disprove if you're living in Jerusalem. Why? Because you can just go, oh, he rose from, grave, from the grave? All right, come with me. We know where the tomb is. Show them the body, the movement is, is over. So the fact that it spread from the very place where Jesus' tomb was is evidence for the resurrection. Second, Jesus' brother James worshipped him as God. What would it take for you to worship your brother as God? <laughs> he would need to rise from the dead. <laughs> Nothing short of that would qualify. Moving on. <clears throat> Number three, the lives of the early Christians are evidence of the resurrection. Uh, first, because of their conviction. Uh, so it's historically verified um, by secular historians that Christians were uh, essentially systematically martyred for their faith and came under uh, incredible cruelty at the hands of Rome. And the vast majority of them died bravely, never recanting on their faith. And so the idea that innumerable people would die for something that they knew to be a lie, that they had fabricated, seems so far-fetched, it's hard to even understand. We, we know what it's like to be afraid. Some of us know what it's like to be in a moment where we're about to lose our life and everything goes out the window for survival in that moment. But as those Christians were standing before their death, they didn't recount, recant on their faith. Why? Because they knew it was true. And they couldn't deny the reality but also, it wasn't just that they had conviction, it was that their lives were changed. We know that Christianity spread through uh, the lower social circles of ancient Rome. It spread to the poor, to the marginalized, to the sick. Why? Because Christians loved the people that no one else loved at the time. And they invited those people into their community. Why? Because they had a resurrected king who had taught them how to love their neighbor. It's verified throughout, that throughout history. You have things like as the Black Plague was coming down on Europe, as everyone was running from the cities, the Christians were running into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, even though it would cost them their life. Why? Because they knew they would rise again. And death wasn't the scariest thing to them. They had seen their Savior come out of the grave, and they believed that they would come out of the grave too, and so they could love their neighbor the way that Jesus had told them to. Number four, there was 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus during the writing of the New Testament. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's defending the resurrection of Jesus, tells people to go ask, like not to take his word for it, but to go ask the 500 people who had seen Jesus alive. What are the chances of getting 500 people to agree on anything? like anything. Nevertheless, that this person was God and rose from the dead, even though saying that and testifying to that 
could likely cost them their life. But they testified to that reality because they had seen a resurrected Jesus. Number five, the music of Bach and Beethoven exists. So I actually heard this from a Christian apologist giving a lecture when I was in college talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he just said that and then moved on. And most of the people in the room kind of laughed and snickered, like, what is this guy? What's he doing? It was actually the most compelling explanation I heard that day for the resurrection of Jesus. I understood what he meant. Here's what he was saying. When you hear beautiful music, when you see a sunrise, when you stand in front of a mountain, you know that there is something wonderful and beautiful and transcendent about this world that is pointing to another. Something happens to you that is spiritual that can't be explained other than that there's another world that we're anticipating. The universal human longing for meaning and significance is unexplainable from a naturalistic perspective. Number six, I know him. I know this might be a little bit of a hard one for you if you're not a Christian, but the reason why I have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead is because I know him like a friend. I talked to him this morning before I came to church, and I believe he spoke back to me through his word. There's this experiential reality to knowing Jesus where your life is just different after you meet him. And I've gotten to watch that not only in my own life where I'm not who I want to be, but I'm also not who I once was. I'm different in ways that I couldn't be different without him, but I've watched that happen over and over and over again. I'm going to get to watch that testified to next week before baptisms. And yes, you can't systematically prove that experience of Jesus, but you also can't systematically or logically explain the concept of love or run love through the scientific method, but we all know that love exists. Why? Because we've experienced it. You can't directly see the wind, but you know of its existence because of its effects on the world. This underdog story of a carpenter and some fishermen has changed the world. And you can't necessarily measure every aspect of that story, but you can see its effect on the world. The very fact that we're here today worshiping him thousands of years later in an entirely different place from where he rose from death because the, the truth of this story has resonated with human beings for thousands of years and will resonate into eternity as we worship him together forever because it's real and it's true. And something in us testifies to that reality. And, and just because we can't fully understand that mystery doesn't make it untrue. Some of the most real things in life are just like that. And Jesus is just like that. We can know him personally as our risen Savior. Jesus rose from the dead. Claim number two. Jesus can make you good. Now, if that doesn't feel like a big claim, all you need to do is read a little bit of the Old Testament and its record of human history. The Bible doesn't give an overly positive look at human beings. And I think we're starting to see that more and more in the world as well as we're seeing some of the, the horrible things that human beings are capable of doing to one another. So this idea that someone could make a human being good is a staggering claim. 
Look at verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So central to the argument of this entire chapter in Philippians is this word found in verse 9, righteousness. And that's a common word. It's, it's, a, it's a churchy word. And so we can just uh, buzz right past it and not really understand what it means. But I want to talk about what it means. It's important. So the word righteousness, uh, you, you can think of rightness or goodness. But, but it's, not a, it's not a narrow word. It's actually a, a massive word that, depending on its usage, can encompass a, a lot of different things. So, so the root word means punishment or justice. Which that might seem odd that the root of righteousness or goodness is punishment or justice. But here's what it's communicating. A righteous person is someone who does not deserve to be punished. Who does not deserve justice. Think of a judge looking at all of the evidence around someone's life who's been accused and dropping the gavel down and declaring them not guilty. After reviewing all of the evidence, they've been found pure, good. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than just not guilty. So righteousness doesn't just mean the absence of things that are wrong. It means the full presence of everything that is good, the fullness of goodness. It means both. And that is an incredible concept to try to get our minds around what it would even be like to not only not have anything wrong with you, but to have the total presence of goodness. So to summarize it, this is the best definition that I found to encompass righteousness. A righteous person is a person who is the way they ought to be. A person who is the way that they ought to be. Now, are you the way that you ought to be? Are you the fullest expression of goodness? I, I listened to this podcast recently uh, where this, this author, Susan Cain, was being interviewed. And she was talking about this concept of longing, or what she called the bittersweetness of life. She wrote a book on it and been studying it for, for several years. And, and she talked about how she believes longing is a universal human experience. This, this sense that there should be more than there is and that we should be more than we are. And she actually talked about how, even though, so she's an agnostic and, and she was being interviewed by an agnostic. But she talked about how that's why she believes the story of the Garden of Eden resonates so much with so many people is because it's the story of a world that was the way that it should have been but that we lost and that we're longing to get back to that place. And her and her interviewer actually both talked about how they experienced this deep sense of longing, of wanting more out of life, but they also were both honest about how it's not just that they want the world to be more than it is, but they feel like they should be more than they are. And they both talked about how they've spent their life trying to be enough, 
trying to do enough, to be enough. They've, they've worked hard and they've kind of studied uh, the good life and how to live well. And no matter how much effort they've put into that, they consistently feel like they're falling short, like they aren't enough. And there's a reason why they feel like they're not enough. There's a reason why we so often feel like we're not enough. And that reason is we aren't enough. We are not what we were meant to be, what we were created to be. We're fallen. We're not what we ought to be, and we cannot ever be what we ought to be in and of ourselves. And religious devotion doesn't change that, by the way. Your effort towards Christianity can't change the brokenness that you experience inside of you. Or maybe it's not coming out through Christianity, it's, it's coming out through some other way. You're trying to validate your existence through your money or through your family or through your success or through your career or through your athleticism or through your intelligence. But there's something in your life that you will be tempted to look at and say, that's the reason why I'm okay. You'll look at it to try to validate your own existence, to justify yourself on this earth. But there's a reason why we get caught up in this perpetual cycle of kind of grinding and going and wanting more and needing more and wanting to do more is because even when we produce the things that we are trying to produce, it's never enough to validate us. And Paul, who wrote Philippians, tried to do this through his own goodness, his own morality. He tried to justify his existence. And he was incredibly religious more than any of us are. In fact, he just got done right before this listing out all of the ways that he was totally devoted to religion and to morality. And here's what he said about all of it. He said it was rubbish, garbage. That's actually a pretty nice way of saying it. The way he says it in the original language is, is a little bit more graphic than that. He's saying it's completely useless. Another way that he says it is that everything he had put effort into for his own goodness and self-justification in his life was not gain, but it was loss. Like if you've got a profit loss spreadsheet in front of you, everything that he thought was adding that was in the green is actually in the red in his life. It was taking away from him. Your goodness could be making your problem worse not better. Here's why, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want you to notice that righteousness from where? From within yourself? No, righteousness from God. In order to have divine approval, to have him look at your life and drop the gavel and say, not guilty. You need divine righteousness. Divine approval requires divine righteousness. Righteousness, goodness, morality that comes down from heaven, not that originates within yourself. And this is what this is saying. It's saying that God wants to give you his righteousness, his absolute moral purity, and not just purity, his moral fullness, his, his perfection. How? By giving you his son. The, the essence of his moral goodness embodied in a divine human being came to earth for you. 
And this is what Jesus offers you. He offers you a trade. He says that he wants to take all of your imperfection and all of the things that haven't measured up about you. And he wants to put them on himself and take the punishment for those things. And then he wants to offer you his perfect record in all of the fullness of his goodness he wants to put on your life. Our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He carries it on the cross so that we don't have to. Our death for his life, his resurrection introduces us to a life that we didn't have access to outside of him. Our lack for his fullness, he wants to trade. And how is that righteousness, that goodness accessed? Only through faith. Faith is giving up on hoping in yourself or helping yourself and putting all of your hope exclusively in Christ. There's this, there's this game or this activity called Bigger and Better. Has anyone played this game? Raise your hand. Be brave. Okay, okay. So some of you have done it. Okay, let me explain what this is. Uh, it's, it's fairly simple. You start with something small and then you trade for something bigger and better. Okay, so I've played this a couple times in my life, but I, I kind of Googled like best results of bigger and better. So there was uh, a professor that had her university students did this to teach them like uh, marketing and how to negotiate. And so she gave all of them a red paper clip in class and then said, you have one week to trade as many times as you can with anybody that you can and come back with the best thing that you can get. So they had one week and they spent the week trading and they all came back into class the next week and there was buzz around the room and a kid walked in with car keys and a car parked outside. He had traded a red paperclip up for a car. I've heard of another example, again, with red paperclip. I don't know why red paperclip is the starting point where they had a year, as many trades as they could have. They came back and somebody had a house. This game is incredible. Go try it. Maybe we should play it as a church. Just door to door, bigger and better. Our church told us to do this. You need to give me something good. Um, bigger and better. Your, every ounce of your goodness that you could produce in this life, all of your effort, all of your self-made righteousness and validation of your existence, it's a red paperclip. It's essentially worthless. And Jesus wants to trade you for a house. The house of his righteousness, his moral perfection, his goodness, an eternity spent in the freedom that he earned in the relationship with God that he has, he wants to bring you into that. That's the trade that he's offering you. But here's what all of us will do. So we'll be looking at that paperclip going, I don't know. I really like this paperclip. When I put it up against the light, it kind of shines. It's kind of nice. No one would ever do that. There's no one ever in the history of bigger and better that has been sad about what they lost because they're always gaining something better. But there's something in us that wants to hold on to what we can offer. And I'm just saying, let it go so that you can experience the better life in Christ. It's one or the other. You got to lose all of your own contributions to gain the contribution and righteousness of Christ. But you're never going to regret what you gave up to gain him. Last claim. Jesus will resurrect you from death. 
if you trust him. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here's what the initial audience would have been thinking about as they heard that word citizen, citizenship. They would have been thinking about being Roman citizens. So citizenship of Rome was this unbelievable privilege. If you were a Roman citizen, it meant that you had rights across all spheres of public life. You had voting rights that other people didn't have. You had property rights. Uh, you could enter contracts. You had marital rights. You couldn't be punished for crimes committed in the same way that other people were punished. In other words, this status of Roman citizen laid the foundation for a life of flourishing that other people didn't have access to. And on top of that, Philippi, that this, the city that this book was written to, was a Roman colony which meant that even though these people lived in Philippi, their, their affinity and identity was with Rome. And so even though they were living in Philippi, if Rome was flourishing and had success and won a battle, they accessed that through their citizenship with Rome. Here's what it's saying, is those who have trusted in Christ have become citizens of heaven. That that is your new status, that's your new identity in him. And that new status lays a foundation for flourishing in joy and hope in this life that no one else has access to that isn't a citizen of heaven. And it also means that even though you don't live in heaven yet, you now enjoy the flourishing and the success of that place that is very real now. Heaven floods back into your life and impacts how you live now through that citizenship and if you trust in Jesus, John 3 says you can be born again. You can have new spiritual life in him. And with that new spiritual life, you inherit heaven. Heaven is your birthright in Jesus Christ. No one can remove heaven from you any more than they could remove Jesus from heaven because you are in Jesus, so heaven is yours. It's your right in him. And even though we don't live in heaven yet, we identify it with it here in this place, one day we will actually live there. We will be called home to the place that Jesus rose to. We will rise with him and live there with him forever. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the hope of Christians it's the culmination of why it would be worth it, as Paul said, to lose everything in your life in comparison to gaining Christ. This is why you should persevere when Christianity gets hard and when it doesn't seem like it's real, when it doesn't seem like it's coming through on its promises, is because one day you will come alive in Christ and death for you is no longer the end. It's a gateway to everything you've been hoping for. Jesus wants to transform you from this lowly existence into a new resurrected body. And your anticipation is that one day you will be holistically remade. You'll be remade physically. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth is not that you're going to be floating around somewhere on a cloud just hanging out. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth 
is of a brand new world and a brand new you to explore that world, to run around in and jump in. The the song, I want to run on greener pastures, I want to dance on higher hills. A physical place with your new physical resurrected body like Jesus' body where you'll invite friends over for dinner and you'll feast with them and you'll drink wine and you'll explore the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus and you'll work, but it won't feel like work. It'll be as refreshing as the best rest is now and where there won't be this longing for more because you'll have everything that you need or desire in him. You'll be remade relationally. Imagine what it would be like if in your life, every single person you encountered was only and, and fully for your good. They just loved you. Creatively, they loved you. Self-sacrificially, they loved you. That's what heaven will be like. No bitterness, no arguing, no comparison, no selfishness, just this mutual self-sacrifice for the benefit of one another as we lift each other up. You'll be remade spiritually. You will not want to sin. (laughs) What will it be like for goodness to be natural to you? We don't have to fight to do the right thing. But it's just not even an option to do anything but the right thing. What, it'll, what will it be like to be whole? To not feel any separation between you and God or between you and what you should be, but for those two things to be one. In other words, when Jesus resurrects you, you will be the way that you ought to be and you will live in the world that you were designed to live in, a world that is the way that it ought to be. You will be righteous, totally and completely good, living in a world of total and complete goodness. Easter, yes, is about the empty tomb of Jesus, but it's equally about your empty tomb. Part of the promise of Easter is that Jesus really did raise from the dead. But the part of Easter that we're still anticipating is your resurrection, our resurrection together to be with him forever. God wants to spend the rest of eternity showing you how amazing he is and how amazing life with him is. God wants to play bigger and better with you forever. God is infinitely good. There's no bottom to it. He just keeps refilling his goodness. Which means that every day in eternity as you're exploring the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, you will find new wonders of his beauty. And every day it's like you'll be trading in something that was the most amazing thing you could have imagined the day before for something that's even better And it will never run out. You will do that over and over and over again into eternity, exploring the creative goodness and glory of your maker. That is your destiny. That is your hope because of him. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus 
can make you good because of that resurrection. And if you believe in him, you will rise from death too. Let's pray. Jesus, our hope in you, in the exchange that you offer us of our sin for your goodness, our unrighteousness for your, your righteousness, it seems almost too good to be true. And our experience of the world is that things that seem too good to be true often are. But this is the exception. There's a reason why we want the world to be more than it is and why we feel like we need to be more than we are. It's because there's a hope and a world that we're still anticipating in you. And so Jesus, I pray that you would save us and that you would bring us home. We want to run on greener pastures with you forever. We want to explore your goodness forever. We can't totally imagine that place and we doubt it, but thank you that even in our doubts and our fears and our insecurity, you are enough. And that it's not our righteousness or ability to muster up enough faith that creates relationship with you. It's just the fact that you came to earth to get us and you rose from the grave. Oh, let us believe, God. Give us hope. Let us live like that world is real. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the blood supplied. Thank you for the life that you offered us. Thank you for being willing to go into a grave for us. Thank you that you didn't stay in the grave so we don't have to stay in our graves. <laughs> we worship you. You're good. Amen.